Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today on this, uh, well actually quite warm uh, November day, must be climate change. Those of you who listen to me a long time will know that is an ironic comment. Um, I am pleased to welcome to the programme Dr. Paul Greenall, who I know personally actually to some extent from a stand in the park here in our area of West Lancashire, who did in fact appear for a few minutes previously in a TMR episode, uh, in an episode I called Voices from the Stand. A number of that I've forgotten, but uh, do look it up in the archives. Um, it's quite entertaining in places and quite quite informative, I think, of the state of affairs back in the day last year, um, where I was just basically sampling the opinions of fellow stand members. Um, anyway, here we are, light having appeared at the end of this particular tunnel. Um, there are, I know there are plenty of tunnels underway, uh, but uh, so Paul joins us again, this time for a proper interview, but um, I shall uh, get into all that in just a minute. I just wanted to say before we get on to that, that um, I was hoping to speak with Professor Keith Ward. I know a number of you were looking forward to that particular interview um, about his latest book, and that was supposed to have happened this week. Um, his book is called The Priority of Mind. It's a very interesting book. Um, I don't agree with everything. I always say this on this program. I don't agree with everything, but it's a really highly thought-provoking book, really easy to read, very deep book, and I do really recommend that, even though you will end up disagreeing with some stuff in it, for sure. Anyway, the interview was all ready to go all prepared. I was one end, he was the other end, and everything possible went wrong. It was really, really disappointing. I put lots of work into that. And uh, to top it all, that was his last chance to do the interview before he had to bring it, well, to bring an end to all speaking arrangements uh, for health reasons for the foreseeable future. So really disappointing, but I have asked him if maybe he could join us at a later date. So we'll see what happens there. So back to today, Paul, it's great to have you on the program. I usually read out a short bio, but I don't have one for you. I know that you work in the NHS, the Holy yes. National Health Service here in the UK. Um, that's basically all I know. So uh, could you give us some info on what you do? Yes, uh, certainly. I, I am a psychologist. I work in the National Health Service in the field of mental health, mm -hmm. where I've spent most of my working life really in different capacities. Started off as an administrator. I went into the field of research. I've lectured in this area, and now mm -hmm. I work as a psychologist. Excellent. And uh, you've been involved with the stand in the park locally, haven't you? For uh, I don't was it. Have you been there longer than me, or was I, have I been there longer than you? I'm not sure actually. I'm not sure. I think you probably joined around the same time. I'm guessing it's probably around eighteen months. Yeah. Do you think maybe 18 months, two years, give or take? Yeah, something like that. And it's great, isn't it, to have that opportunity to, to speak with people and feel sane that you're actually speaking to people who really understand something of what's going on in the world. Um, yes. And it looked like that you were going to lose your job earlier this year. Yes. Yeah, earlier this year. Yes, it was earlier It's incredible, year. isn't it? Things have moved on so far. I think, oh, this is all last year. But no, no, no. This is, it could have happened earlier this year, thanks to the government's... It came very close. That's right. I mean, they had this insane idea of a COVID injection mandate for people like you. Thankfully, did not happen. You say it came very close. Um, it came very, very close indeed. In indeed. So we're going to talk for about... personally, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Right. absolutely. No, no, no. We, we, we are going to talk about that um, yes. in, in a minute. Um, but um, the main thing, we're mainly going to be talking about the fact that um, you are preparing currently to stand as an independent candidate in the local by-election here in West Lancashire. West Lancashire, yes. Yeah, so could you tell us about that? Because obviously there are 
you know, there are people listening in the US and in Australia and places like that. Could you just give an insight as to what that's about? Well, yes, certainly indeed. I mean, the UK is, I'm sure, very similar to the US, Australia and other Western countries in as much as we, we all have MPs or senators or whatever you call them. And each person represents a small piece of land, which we call a constituency. Mm. And from time to time, members of parliament will resign, leave politics for whatever reason. Um, And several weeks ago, my local MP, quite unexpectedly, announced that she was leaving. She was taking up a new post in the National Health Service Mm. and she was going. And so out of nowhere, we suddenly found ourselves with with the possibility of what we call a by-election in the constituency of West Lancashire. So that will be taking place probably within the next several weeks, a month or two. Mm. Yes, indeed. Well, I very much hope if you do get in, that you will be more use than the <laughs> than the previous. Although I know the previous uh, MP was very highly regarded in many ways, but I did. She was. I I, she I was. wrote to her about various issues. I know a lot of people did, and uh, there are certain issues she would not touch. Let's put it that way. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what, what happens from now on. Okay, so that's what we're mainly going to be talking about. But I want to return to this threat which has now gone um, to your employment. Um, So what I'm interested about this is how this actually came to you. Obviously, we heard about this sort of thing in the news, but this obviously came across your desk in a personal way. So, you know, what happened with that and how did you react to that? Um, I I spotted it before it came across my desk, so to speak, in as much as um, it's difficult for me to articulate exactly what what I felt at the time. But Mm. when COVID-19 first started to break, I said to my wife on a number of occasions, I don't know what it is, but there's something about this just doesn't feel right. Mm. And uh, I said it on many, many occasions, and you listen to people talking about what was happening, and slowly but surely people started to talk about the idea of vaccinations and mass vaccinations and vaccination centres being opened up. And mm. slowly but surely the story started to evolve, and then we started to hear the idea of mandatory vaccinations. And as soon as I heard that, I just had this niggling doubts in the back of my mind or an alarm bell ringing and I said to my wife several months before it happened I think this could be the end of our working lives Mm. and um, I watched the news quite avidly then from that moment on and slowly but surely that's exact that is exactly how the story started to unfold you might recall that they um, they chose that's being polite they chose the care workers first I would put it they targeted the care workers first Mm. They picked on a group of people in, in our society who are quite vulnerable in as much as they do a very, very difficult, very valuable job. But I don't think they get paid an awful lot of money for it. Mm. They targeted those people first. And I could just see the story unfolding. I knew it was going to be the National Health Service next. Mm-hmm. And um, fortunately, my wife and I reached the same conclusion independent of each other. We didn't force each other. We got to the same place. She got there before me, to be fair, but we got to the same place around about the same time and we decided that we were not going to take a mandatory vaccine. And um, my mind was made up before the kind of threat started coming my way. So by the time the threat started coming my way, I was already ready for them. I was making plans for it, really. Mm. Very, very sad, very unfortunate. Yes, and of course for you, seeing that already creeping into care and health, you know, it was very much at your front door, wasn't it? Uh, well, yes. You know, in my, I mean, I have to admit, in the summer of 2021, we were on holiday and I was seeing what was happening over in France with the uh, the passports, COVID passports business was being introduced and all that sort of thing. And I was getting really depressed about it. And I, I was actually at one point in tears, just anticipating what might happen. Yeah. Because it was, you know, there were shades of 20th century authoritarianism about this, which is, you know, really very disturbing. Oh, but, 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 I, but for you, I agree. but for you, 
This is even more the case, isn't it? Because it was right before you. You know, it's not like something hypothetical as it was more in my case. It was very real. And um, as I said before, I spent most of my working life in the field of psychology in general and mental health. And mm. as anybody who's got any experience of working in the field of mental health in, in any capacity will know, to work in this field, you need to study at university, you need to have university degrees, qualifications, you need to have experience. Yeah. And basically, it's a process which never ends. You're always learning. It's a process of continual professional development. You're always reading books or attending courses or trying to keep abreast of the latest developments. It, it's a process of lifelong learning. And so yeah. to sit down and think to myself, my goodness, this is how it ends. Yeah. All of that effort, all of that studying, all of those books I've read, I've done research, I've published research in my field. Yeah. It's all going to end because of this. And um, just to put it into a wider context, for your listeners, I'm 55 years of age. So during my lifetime, I've seen several prime ministers of different political persuasions. But what they've all had in common, they've all wanted, for example, to reduce unemployment, They've all wanted, for example, in their own way to reduce poverty. So to find yourself in the United Kingdom in the 21st century being threatened and bullied by a government that they are going to make you unemployed with all the implications that will go with that. I won't use the word poverty, but, you know, I would have been placed in a, in a state of what we could call relative poverty. I would have lost my income. Yeah. My wife and I were on the we were on the verge of putting our house up for sale. That's what we were getting ready ready to do. Wow. We were going to try and mm. um, hopefully move to a less expensive part of the UK. We were, we, we were looking for houses in different parts of the country to see if we could buy a house there. You know, it was getting pretty close to the bone. And, and mm. all this because a government in the United Kingdom, say this again, in the United Kingdom mm. in the 21st century was threatening and bullying us because we refused to take a medical intervention which we did not want to take. Mm. And again, the important thing to bear in mind here is, as part of my training to work in the National Health Service, and this will apply to every other healthcare professional, probably across the Western world, I had to learn about, read about, pass exams about the concept of informed consent, yeah. which basically gives a patient in any area, and that includes you and I, when we are patients of the National Health Service, it gives any patient the right to say, no, thank you. I do not wish to receive this medical intervention. Mm. We have to evidence this kind of ethical procedure within our practice. So to find myself as a National Health Service professional being told that my consent was irrelevant and if I did not do as I was told, I would be put on the dole unemployed was absolutely horrendous. And mm. I, I again, I, I said to my wife many, many times, because if, if I hadn't have gone into psychology, I would have gone into history. I'm an armchair historian. And I said to my wife many, many, on many occasions, if you want to know what happened in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, look around you now, because mm. this is how this could happen. If it can happen in the, in the UK in the 21st century, this is how it happened in Germany in the 1930s, and it could happen anywhere. And when you looked at what was happening in Australia, that country looked sadly as if it descended into almost tyranny. It was a really awful, awful time. Yes, and I think those parallels are justified. I know that uh, Matthias Desmet has been talking for a long time about 
um, what does he call it? Um, can you think of the term? Um, Ma- mass, formation, mass formation. Mass, uh, mass formation. Mass formation. And whatever one thinks of the particular intricacies of, of, of that theory is another matter. Yeah. You know, but there, there's something of that, isn't there, that I think the majority of us who were very concerned about this felt at the time. There were parallels that we were drawing, and I think those were, were very justified. I suppose, from your point of view, as a trained psychologist, you must have been also very aware of the manipulation techniques that were taking place in terms of propaganda in the media and the like, mustn't you? Oh, yes. Mm. This was, I mean, in any other time, I'd be embarrassed to say this, but our government in the UK, again, in the 21st century, was taking notes from from Joseph Goebbels in the 1930s because Mm. they played a very, very old political trick and a psychological trick as well, which is, first of all, you make people afraid of something. And then you make them believe that you have the answer. Mm. And they played that beautifully, but they extended that little trick in one significant way. They made our experience of this thing, in this case, the virus, as inconvenient and as confusing as possible. So you couldn't go and visit your friends. You couldn't go and see grandma. Mm. You couldn't go to the pub. You couldn't go to a football match. You couldn't go to the theater. You couldn't go here, there and everywhere. All of these places that we go to on an on a routine basis, we couldn't go. They were shut down. They were stopped. We couldn't go anywhere. So you've got fear coupled with massive inconvenience, confusion, because the, the regulations seem to be getting changed practically by the day. Half the time, the politicians didn't know what, what the regulations were. And then out of all of this comes a solution. And the solution was the vaccine. <laughs> and it was done on purpose to try and get people to line up yeah to take their solution Mm. and it was a i hate to say this it was a fantastically played psychological trick and technique which they wielded against us but the interesting thing is it wasn't just in the uk Mm. because we saw the very same or very very similar script play out in many many western countries canada the usa australia new zealand and some of them were further along the line than what we were right across western europe Mm. we began to realize those of us who were watching what was going on that they were all basically singing from the same hymn sheet as we say it was coordinated no doubt about it yeah yeah so we have that fact before us and we also have you know documentary evidence of the mind space document because it's the most famous example of this but so you know this is not just uh, speculation is it we know this was a, a campaign of fear mongering for sure and as you say it was coordinated internationally as well um yeah so i mean people are saying now of course we just move on you know we didn't realize what we were doing and uh mistakes were made and come on we need to just get on with our lives now and uh, forget about it all basically and amnesty and all that um doesn't wash with me does it wash with you no no i'm (laughs) i'm I'm not a don't get me wrong i'm not a vindictive person i don't mm. and i'm the first mm. one to admit i will be the first person to say that we all make mistakes because i've made plenty mm. myself mm. as i'm sure we all do exactly it's mm. not about vindictiveness i would like to understand exactly what was going on mm. because the one thing which helped me in all of this the one thing which i found really really helpful was and again i, I said this to my wife many times as probably as you did and, and i'm sure many of your listeners did we spoke about this over the dinner table. We spoke about this in our, you know, in our homes on many occasions, trying to scratching our heads, trying to figure out just what was going on. Mm. But I had all along through this, and this is what helped me tremendously. I had what I called my anchor point, which was the mortality rate. And if your listeners have heard of a British doctor, he's a cardiologist. His name is Doctor Asim Malhotra. Mm, probably, yeah. He has recently published a couple of papers. Mm 
evidence-based peer-reviewed papers. And he lists here, I've got it right, right in front of me, mm. he lists here the survival rate for COVID-19. So I'm a man in, in my 50s. My survival rate is 99.73%. And although there have been a number of studies on this published from different countries around the world, from what I can recall, the survival rates have been roughly the same. I've always had a 99 point something percent chance of surviving. And most other people haven't. And okay, they said, oh, it's about granny. Mm. Well, okay, I'm too old now to have grandparents, but I've got an elderly mother. She's in her 90s. Her survival rate is, is over 97 percent. So what I was saying to myself all the way through this, when people were talking about mass vaccination campaigns and um, mass vaccination centers and the dreaded vaccine passport and people losing their jobs, I kept saying to myself, is this necessary for a virus from which I have a 99.7% chance of survival? And when you assess it in that context, you then realize in reality, this isn't about a virus or, or this isn't about public health. It looks as if this is about something else. Hmm. I don't know what that something else is, but that's what it, in the end it started to make me conclude. This isn't about public health. This is about something else. Yes, I think a lot of people have concluded that. I mean, myself included it. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't say for sure that I, you know, I understand all of it. But that aspect no, me, of me it either. is very clear. And also when you add to what you've just been talking about, the fact that we've recently heard from a, a Pfizer representative that they never tested their injection for transmission anyway. Indeed. So <laughs> um, this whole idea about protecting granny, etc. Well, didn't seem like there was much to that in the first place anyway. Which, um, which, which, which was one of those moments in life which really made me stop think sit down and scratch my head even further because what that made me realize was the threat of unemployment which i faced and a hundred thousand other nhs workers faced mm. the threat of unemployment which countless thousands of care workers faced was based on a lie Yes, indeed. And of course, that is going to connect straight into what you're doing now, isn't it? Because all those experiences are bundled there in your history and inputting into your current action, which is to your intention to stand as an independent candidate in this local by-election here. Um, yes. And that, that could, I mean, just possibly that could see you becoming a member of parliament, I suppose, for this constituency here. So, I mean, I'm gonna, this is a bit of a trite question, but um, no, go in a sense that we've just been talking about what we have. So to what extent is what we've just been talking about central to your intentions here? Because I know that you also have a history in, in politics as well. So can you tease that apart? To what extent is it about the pandemic, so-called pandemic, and to what extent is it a continuation of your political involvement in the past? Um, that's an excellent question. I, I think it is, it's a bit of both, really. I mean, I, hmm. as you mentioned, I, I was I was involved in local politics for 20 years. I was a local councillor um, in my area. I, I served as the mayor of my borough. I was in the Conservative Party. I, I was very, very proud of that. I met David Cameron. I met Theresa May. I met Boris Johnson. I went to Number 10 Downing Street. I went to the Houses of Parliament. I went to a garden party at Buckingham Palace. I, I and the, they were the. You weren't. You weren't in any of the dubious parties, were you? 
<laughs> no, <laughs> no, but but it was absolutely. In any of the parties that that didn't take place, you wanted any oh, no, of those? No, 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 okay. no, I, right. no I'd, I'd left politics by then. But <laughs> but most importantly, I mean, they were the nice things that that you got back. But you know, most importantly, it was nice to do something for my community. It was nice to, mm. you know, as a local councillor, we we fix potholes and we we fix streetlights <laughs> and we we make sure people's bins are being emptied and yep. you know the mm. politics is local. And, you know, if you can't fix fix the local things, then don't talk to me about the big issues. And yeah, it was great being involved as a councillor, getting these these local things done. But in the end, I had had my time. I, I never wanted to be involved in politics for all my life. I did 20 years and I thought it was time to move on. So when the option of a by-election came up, it was a kind of a mixture of, yes, um, absolutely residual anger from what I experienced earlier this year. Mm. But also this idea of, our politics has become a pantomime, mm. you know, to have three prime ministers in one year, mm. for example. Mm. You know, I, I'm a reasonable person. I don't necessarily spend my time searching for conspiracies or conspiracy theories or big bad monsters around every corner. But mm. when you sit back and you think we've had three prime ministers in one year, now leave aside the individuals concerned, whether you like Boris Johnson or Liz Truss, or, leave all that aside. The reality of the situation, as I understand it was, Boris Johnson won a general election, quite a hefty majority. He therefore had the right to be prime minister. Okay, he may have done silly things, but leaving that aside. (laughs) But he had to go. So then Liz Truss came along. And the important thing to recognise about the election of Liz Truss was she was chosen by the party members. Now, the Conservative Party picks its leaders in situations like this when the MPs have to narrow down all the contenders down to the final two and the final two go out to party members. That's what happened here. And Liz Truss won. Now, whether you like Liz Truss or not, that's not the point. She went through a democratic process and she won. Right. But she wasn't able to stay. She was then gotten rid of. And then somebody else come along. But this time, Rishi Sunak didn't even have to go through any kind of electoral process, which again makes you think, is this the case of the establishment finally getting their man in place? Is this how a democracy should work? Again, this, is, this isn't a banana republic. This is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. This is the 21st century. And we've had three prime ministers in a matter of weeks. Yes. It just looks like a pantomime. Yes. I know what you mean. It's, it's almost like you know, to use an analogy of some pebbles or something rattling around in the tin and, and none of them seem to drop into the hole. But then one eventually drops into the hole because it fits. Yeah. <laughs> there yeah, is that um, feeling about it, isn't there? This is the guy who's huh? very keen on digital currency. This is the guy who's mates with the World Economic Forum. And this is the guy who's the multi-billionaire, etc., isn't it? Well, these are, I mean, the, these are... Multi-millionaire, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. You know, these are... Um, you know, the specter of, of a central bank digital currency, if that's going to really happen, then mm. again, the potential that that has for being abused, mm. maybe not necessarily by the government that we have in power now, mm. but in politics, you think about tomorrow. Yes. In yes. my opinion, anyway, this is how I always think politics should be viewed. So what policy we're bringing in today, how can this be abused tomorrow by a government who may be less savoury than what we've got now? And what's so frustrating about that is if you bring up that sort of issue, which is very important, people will say you're a conspiracy theorist. Of course. That's the whole mm. point. You see, you, you think about what can happen in the future. You role play it. You scenario play it. Mm. How can this go wrong? And mm. therefore, if you can come up with, with reasonable ideas as to how this plan can go wrong, then you've got the option to take steps to avoid it going wrong. Mm. And so, so mm-hmm. go on, sorry, go on. No, no, you finish your thought. Yeah. So, so it, it was just a, a mixture of, like I say, residual anger, 
you know, mm. these people were threatening me with unemployment, not just me, but hundreds, thousands and thousands of other people. Mm. And it's also this idea that the mainstream media and the politicians that we have in Westminster, with the exception of a handful, are not asking the questions. Mm. Nobody is questioning what you and I are talking about. Mm -hmm, mm. The simple questions that you and I are raising, you know, why were these people threatened with, with unemployment? Why were these actions taken for a virus which most people have a 99% chance of survival? Why were people talking about the only solution to this being a vaccine? Mm. I'm not a scientist in this respect. I'm not qualified to comment on these things, but, but I can listen to what other people say. And the fact is there are, simply too many doctors from across the English-speaking world and beyond who, for example, were telling us time and time again that ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine could be used to treat COVID-19. And yet, if you said that, you were a conspiracy theorist, you were a tinfoil-wearing mm -hmm. lunatic, if you were a doctor, you were threatened to being struck off. And it just makes me think, why? Why? <laughs> Yeah. Is it not reasonable to to offer patients a choice of what treatment mm -hmm. or medication mm -hmm. or medical intervention you would like? Absolutely. Why are people not asking these questions? Absolutely. I totally agree with you. And of course, we've had people on the show indeed talking about those very two substances in the past. Um, and um, so it's very clear to me that you are prepared to talk about these things. You are prepared to bring up awkward questions. Um, so I want to ask you, would you do that if you were to get into Parliament? How far outside the Overton window, as it were, would you be prepared to speak in public in the chamber? I would want to ask these questions in the House of Commons if I became an MP. Mm. I would say, and I would, I would say the same there as I can say here. I am not qualified to comment on ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine. I, I just don't have the qualifications to talk about it. But I have the ability to listen to what other people have to say. Mm. So my question would be, if there are so many doctors around the world, and some of these people are top doctors in their field, these people can't be dismissed. You know, the likes of Dr. McCullough, Dr. Malone, you know, these people can't, these people aren't, you know, these are at the top of their field. Mm, mm. You know, if these people are raising these questions, if these people are telling us that these interventions are here, Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, for example, a doctor who I think practiced in New York, he came up with what is now known as the Zelenko Protocol. Mm. He was telling us that this intervention was reducing mortality in COVID patients. I think it was 70, 80 something percent. Again, I'm not qualified to say whether what mm. he's right or whether he's wrong, but I can listen to what this man has to say. Mm. I'm very interested in what he has to Absolutely. say. So mm. why is this not being discussed, at least in the mainstream media, in the House of Commons, in our country? It was an astonishing time. It really was. I remember David Davis actually trying to persuade the House of Commons to take seriously introducing vitamin D, um, you know, getting people up to a reasonable standard with vitamin D intake. And it didn't really get very far. I think they did introduce something, didn't they, to, to people in care homes or something up to the recommended daily amount or something. Well, but you needed 10 times that, according to research that I've come across, you, you needed 10 times that kind well, of intake I, to make a well, difference. I, yes, and, indeed. I mean, but at I, least, you know, good on him for actually doing that, but didn't seem to get anywhere. Um, yes, I mean, I, and I listened to him and I listened to Dr. Zelenko mm. and I thought to myself, well, you know what I'm going to do? I think I will follow the yes. Zelenko protocol. Mm. So I started taking vitamin D, vitamin C, mm. zinc, quercetin, because you can't get mm. hydroxychloroquine mm. In, in the UK, or at least we couldn't back then. And th that's what I've done. That's what I've done. But again, yeah. surely if this was about public health, would we not have yeah. public health officials, be they doctors or politicians responsible for this, saying to the public, 
oh, by the way, I believe vitamin D will help. Mm. So go down to your local health food store and buy a little jar of vitamin D. <laughs> yes, incredible. Go down yeah. to your little mm. local your local health food store, get some vitamin C, get some zinc, and that will probably help us all swimmingly. Mm. It, it was. Is that not yeah. is that not reasonable behaviour that that we would expect in in the UK in the twenty first century? Mm. All right, so you would be outspoken in that role. So w- yes. would you, in a sense, be a bit like um, Christopher Chope, who has been pretty outspoken, hasn't he? He's one of the handfuls of people who comes to mind. Mm. He's mm. he's asking questions. He yes. may be right, he may be wrong. That's not the point. At least he's mm. asking the questions. And, of course, he's in the Tory party. So my question here yes. would be, okay, you've been a Tory member, haven't you? So uh, why wouldn't you go through that way? Why wouldn't you be a, a Tory candidate? I'm not in the Conservative Party anymore. I, I left the Conservative Party several years ago. I, mm. I became disillusioned with party politics, Right. to be absolutely mm. blunt. I mm. think mm. party politics is, I personally, me, I think it's had its day. I think the old battlegrounds of right versus left have been surpassed. And I think mm. certainly they've been surpassed by an event such as this, because it doesn't matter whether you're, whether you're of the political left or the political right. I think whoever was in power would have followed the script. Mm. I say the script because of what I said before. It seems to have been orchestrated by who or why. I have no idea. But I think if your government in your country was to the left or the right, they probably would have followed it. And so therefore, left or right is of no use anymore. Mm. Yes, a lot of people would agree with that. I agree with that as well. Um, Now, another question that people I know will be waiting for me to ask you is, you know, to what extent you think you are sort of playing the game by doing this and feeding the beast in a way, you know, this is the system, this is the way politics is done, you know, you, you go and you stand up there as a candidate and you're inside the machine. Is it not better just to stand outside and to engage in direct action, etc., rather than going inside as a cog within the machine of the system? Are you not likely to get swallowed up and compromised, etc.? You have to be realistic about this. You know that, that's that's an excellent question. You, you have to be realistic about this. Um, in the UK, we have 650 MPs. So even if I was to win, I would be one voice. Mm. I'd be a lone mm. voice. So, yes, you can you can try and change things from outside. The problem is politics and parliaments, senates, House of Representatives, etc. These are the places where decisions are made, at least in theory, anyway. And if more people, not only in the UK, you know, if you, know, you mentioned before you've got listeners from out from outside the UK, I say this to your countries as well. If men and women from any and all walks of life stood up and said, we've had enough of this, in every constituency in the UK and, and America, Australia, New Zealand, if, they, if, if decent, ordinary men and women from all walks of life could stand up and say, enough we are going to stand as an independent in our area Mm. and if we all tried to do something then we could bring in change Mm. because one thing politicians do not like is the threat of losing power Mm. they fear us they fear the masses but unfortunately at the moment the masses are not being mobilized so and of course it's right they should fear shouldn't they 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 shouldn't be complacent yes indeed and and more likely to do their job properly if they fear us when the government fear the people you live in a free Mm. society yes i totally agree and I suppose it's also important, isn't it? Even if you say you'd be a lone voice, you might be one of a few, let's say. But that's quite important, isn't it? Just to be able to articulate a minority viewpoint, because this is another one of the things which Matthias Desmet talks about, isn't it? That if you've got a kind of 
you know, 50% of the population undecided, really. You've got, uh, say, 20% of the population going along with the narrative, whatever it is, and 30% of the population, well, they're not going around, but, but they've got 50% in the middle. They don't know where, which way to go. They're listening to various voices. If you've got somebody high profile, like you might be, people like you in that sort of situation, articulating that questioning position, they're less likely to go along with whatever the narrative is. They're likely to say, oh, just a minute. Yeah, I'm going to stick to my guns on this. My questions are justified. So you would actually have that kind of role, wouldn't you? Yes, because we, there comes a point in our life, and I, I didn't think it was going to happen to me, and you know, the, where you have to make a stand. Mm. You have to make a stand. And I'm, I'm not trying to over-egg the pudding of what I did in, in February. I was, there were thousands of people like me. Mm. But the way I saw it in the end, I found myself on a hill I was prepared to die on. My grandfather fought in the First World War. My own father was too young for the Second World War, but my wife's father fought in, in the Second World War. Mm. He was in the Royal Navy. He was sunk. You know, these these people came very, very close to losing their lives. So in our grandparents' generation, they had to stand up and fight for freedom. Our parents' generation, they had to stand up and fight for freedom. Mm. I didn't think I'd have to do this. But ultimately, I think that's what we did. Because if NHS workers hadn't have stood their ground, if we'd have given in and accepted the mandatory vaccination, it would have continued. Mm. Who would they have gone after next? Would it have been people who work in schools? Would it have been people who work in universities? If they'd have done that, you could have got ourselves very quickly in a situation Mm. where every single person Mm. in the country Mm. had to have a vaccine in order to work. Mm. And this is where I think we, the 100,000 NHS workers, did our country a service. We made a stand. We said no. Mm. Mm. And I think we, we helped bring that to a stop. I think you're right. I think we do owe you a debt of gratitude. And and had you not done that... I don't think it's recognised yet. But... No, I don't think so. So here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Let's recognise it here, for sure. That's right. Um, so forget all the banging on pots and pans outside oh, your front door, etc. I, I, I never <laughs> no, did. No, no, neither did I. I never did. Oh, I didn't do it because I was told to do it. <laughs> no, I didn't do it once. I work in the NHS and I did not do that once. I thought it was... Right. I, I, I thought it was. I thought it was bizarre. It was theatre, wasn't it? It was all part of the theatre. Yes, it was theatre, yes. because there's so many people in our society who are important, yes, key yes, workers. Yes, yes. You know, we go to a supermarket to buy some food. The key workers there are the, are, are the truck drivers who brought it to the supermarket, mm. the staff in the supermarkets who are putting it on the shelves, the people who work at the tills who are saving us. It, it, everyone's mm. a key worker. Absolutely. It wasn't about the NHS. It was about the narrative. It was about the narrative. Which is quite an insult, actually, to people working in the NHS, if you actually think it through. Yeah. So, yes, we we owe you a debt of gratitude. And indeed, you know, had it not been for Omicron, you know, if we'd had something much worse come along, then I think, you know, the scenario that you painted with mass vaccination going ahead, a very real possibility there. So, uh yeah, that could have been very frightening. That's certainly what I was anticipating um, in my darkest moments, you know. But again, we need to ask ourselves why. Mm, and, mm. and if I got to Parliament, I'd be asking why. Yes. Why did we go down this path? Like I said before, go back to your anchor point. What they wanted to do, they wanted, I believe the phrase is, to control the narrative. Mm. So if you keep on going back, this is what helped me, and I'm, I'm offering this advice to anybody who wants to take it. Keep on going back to your anchor point, which is the survival rate. So if we've got a 99% chance of surviving something, and they want us to take a medical intervention, then why do they want us to do that? And this is where we, this is where questions need to be asked. I mean, you, you mentioned before briefly the idea of a central bank digital currency. Mm. You know, if that was to come out, this isn't being too fanciful. You know, please tell me if you think I am. But yeah. 
you know, the, the idea of a vaccine passport, mandatory vaccinations, a central bank digital currency, you could see how with a little hop, skip and a jump, that could be abused and we could descend into tyranny. Absolutely. Is that what this was all about? It does make you wonder. And I think it's rational to ask that sort of question. And just to sort of... It's a reasonable question. It is, indeed. Just to give in and say, oh, well, nothing like that would happen. I think it's a very stupid attitude, really. I think, yes, we we need to be on our toes with this kind of thing. And when you you also add into that uh, scenario, the fact that these digital currencies can be programmed, which not everybody seems to realise, that's particularly frightening, isn't it? Because you could then be coerced, uh, quite directly coerced as an individual by governments and corporations to act in certain ways and not act in other ways. And that goes right against the free world. Indeed. I mean, this is because one last point I'll make, if you want to, is the the fact that I don't think that this is over yet. I'm sorry to say. Right. No, I think you're right. Yeah, because we don't know quite what corner it's going to turn. But yeah, I agree with you. Indeed. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you were, let's say, hypothetically, you were voted in. Yes. As an independent. Yes. What would you mainly be trying to do? I mean, you have Conservative Party background. Yes. um, Yet you are now an independent and you're very fired up, clearly, about all the things that we've been talking about. Yes. Would you essentially be going into that situation with just this on your mind? What else would you, what other ideas, policies would you Uh, represent for the people? Oh, I, I... I said before, politics is local, and um, mm. I think any politician who forgets that does so at their peril. I mean, um, I will say something which has been dear to my heart for most of the time that I was in politics, mindful of the fact that probably no one will have any idea what I'm talking about. But mm-hmm. in my local constituency, there is an issue called the Bursco Curves, which is a 500-metre stretch of disused railway line, which I and many, many other people have tried to get reopened over the years. And if it was reopened... It would make a quite a big impact in West Lancashire and it remains closed. So if I became an MP, I would fight tooth and nail to try and get the Bursco Curves reopened. If I became an MP, we have a town in, in West Lancashire called Skelmersdale, mm. which I believe it certainly was. I'm sure it still is one of the biggest towns in England not to have a railway station. In fact, get this, when they built Skelmersdale, they took the railway line out, I believe. <laughs> How crazy is that? Right. So there's been, yeah. a, um, there's, there's been a, a desire to bring a railway line back into Skelmersdale. I found out a few weeks ago that that's been knocked back. It's been rejected. I think it's an excellent idea to have a railway line in Skelmersdale. So there are local issues which I would want to try and get involved in and to try and fight for and champion so it's not just about what's happened in our country over the last year or two as important as as that is an mp has got to try and get local things done in their local area Mm. because as i say politics is local and they're they're just Mm. two things which certainly the the first one has been a bugbear of mine for many many years and it's just incredible that such a small piece of disused railway line is left closed and i think at the time last time i was involved in it we were told of course there's no money for it well, I'm guessing now there's plenty of money because we print money now like it's going out of style. We're sending <laughs> heavens knows how many millions and millions over to the Ukraine to fight a war over there. <laughs> so I'm guessing there's loads of money now. So we and, and if we haven't got it, then presumably they can switch the printing machines on and print a few more million pounds. So I'm guessing finances are not any are not an issue anymore because seemingly we can spend money like a like a drunken sailor, if you pardon the expression. <laughs> 
right? So your priority would be to be a local servant. You, you're not going into this, oh, I'm going to have a career change. You, you, you're no, very, no, 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 okay. no I, I don't think politics is a career. I don't think it should be viewed as a career. I don't think it should be allowed to be a career. I think... I think the Americans have got a great idea where the president can only serve for two terms in office. Why can't we have something similar for MPs? Hmm. Hmm. I don't think it should be a career. Hmm. Hmm. And would you be wise to the tricks of uh, civil servants, you reckon, trying to manipulate you? And, <laughs> and I'm thinking of, uh, you know, Sir Humphrey Appleby. Oh, I worked with officers in the local council and they are gifted, intelligent people and, and they can be very, very help, helpful and but yes, I'm sure the higher up the ladder you get, I'm sure there are plenty of um, scenes from, yes, Prime Minister. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows indeed. And what about, um, I mean, how far in terms of going down the rabbit hole would you be prepared to go, you know, um, in speaking to people and trying to appeal to voters and the like? I mean, would you have a question everything kind of position or would you be more circumspect? That's a very good question because I think trust in politics and some of our institutions for me anyway has completely gone mm. so um if a politician was to tell me now that it's raining outside and i should put a coat on <laughs> i'd go outside and check before i went outside mm. Mm. and that's a particularly awful thing to say isn't it mm. to live in a democracy and to hold those views and i and my fear is i'm not the only one who thinks like that mm. so i think in future if any politicians come along and telling me that i should do this or i should do that i will really really be a lot more critical in future than I have been in the past, because like many people, I've trusted these people. I've trusted our institutions. I've trusted our governments. I may not always have agreed with them politically, but I've at least respected them and trusted them. That trust is now completely gone. So yes, if someone says to me that we, we must do this, so we need to do that, I would stop and say, well, why? Where's the evidence for this? And what's the alternative? I mentioned Ukraine before, for example. Are we making that situation better or are we making that situation worse? Now, again, mm -hmm. the prevailing norm, the, the prevailing narrative is we have to do this and we have to fight the good fight. But you know what is it? Is this not something which could risk an escalation of war mm. and the deaths of many millions of people? Who's asking these questions? Mm. We have a duty to be critical. I come from a humble working class background. I went to a comprehensive school. But 40 years ago, my teachers were teaching me a lesson which I have kept all my life, which is to be critical, to question the actions of the rich and powerful. Not necessarily to see them always as being bad people, you know, people who've got evil intent, not to necessarily view them like that. I, I don't view them like that, but to question what they are doing, to question their actions and to question their motives. And if we had a society which did more of that, then they wouldn't have got away with what they got away with over the last couple of years. So we have a duty to question. Mm. We have a duty. I absolutely agree with you. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. I agree that we, we all need to do everything we can on every front, whether that be, you know, through traditional channels like standing for parliament or, or whatever it is, you know, or indeed outside the system, demonstrating in the streets. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, indeed. Because my fear is this isn't over mm, yet. Mm. That's my big fear. This isn't over yet. Because anybody, any of your listeners who have done any kind of basic independent research or listen to alternative voices would have come across the concept of what's being called excess deaths mm. which is basically there are more people dying now in the uk than the five-year average and i came across the other day i think it was in in alberta in canada they were saying exactly the same thing is happening over there mm. i believe it's happening in other countries in europe mm. so again okay what's causing this What's happened over the last year or two, which could possibly 
be making more and more people die than we are used to mm. over the five or six year average. Mm. I have no idea what it is, but at least let's question it. I mean, there are some doctors, and I mentioned before Dr. Asim Malhotra before, mm. I'm pretty sure in his paper he's called for the vaccines to be stopped pending a proper investigation. Mm. To my mind, that seems a perfectly reasonable thing to do because we have this thing called excess deaths. Is this going to get worse or will this be over by Christmas, to use a very old phrase? <laughs> we don't know, and I certainly don't no, know. No. It's, it's very refreshing to hear somebody like you speaking openly about this. Will you allow your mouth to be shut if you're actually voted in? You know, if you... I become an MP, no. Mm, mm. No, because... It's the duty of a it's the duty of a citizen to ask the, to ask these questions. It's the duty of an MP. Mm. Earlier this year, you know, there was a there was a day earlier this year, mm. I was going to be off work for about a week or two because I was taking leave that I had to take because I thought I was losing my job. I was on a couple of training courses and one night I left the place where I was working at the time, and I didn't know whether I was actually going to go back. So I hadn't been making appointments with patients to see them because I didn't want to. I didn't know if I was going to be there or not. So when you look at that and you look at the life you've got and the house you've worked to buy and everything you've worked hard to try and achieve, and it's all going to be lost mm. because you won't do as the government says, to me, it was a bit of a life-changing event. Mm. So now, if I was to become an MP, they would not stop me from asking these questions. Absolutely not. Well, I very much applaud what you're doing. And, uh, you know, it's not that I, because I haven't asked you about every policy position that you, you might have. It's, it's not really about that, isn't it? But I, I applaud the fact of what you're doing and the things that you have already said today on this program. It's great to speak with somebody who, you know, stands for what they believe wants to make this kind of difference and clearly has the ability prepared to, you know, well, in the good go out there and make that kind of difference. Well, um, yeah, go, you, you're going you're gonna to say, go on. In the good old days, mm. we could disagree with each other. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, right. and um, mm. neither one of us would be labelling the other one a conspiracy theorist or, <laughs> or yes. negative terms like lunatic or anything like that. In mm. the good old days, we could have a discussion, we could have a debate, Yes. We could disagree with yes. each other. And this is what used to happen when I was a local councillor. Mm. We would have heated debates in the council chamber and then we would have a cup of tea or something like that afterwards and laugh at what we'd just been saying to each other. Mm. There was no bitterness or animosity. Mm. It, this was how democracy used to work. Nowadays, it seems as if you take a different view to me, then I will label you as being some kind of, you're offending me or you're, you're, <laughs> a, you're a conspiracy yes. theorist or you're That's a right. danger, you're spreading misinformation, you're spreading disinformation. I think what's... What's happened to our society? Yeah. Don't forget, I can't remember who it was now, but those people earlier, certainly last year, were saying that, for example, those who haven't taken a vaccine should wear a badge. Oh, that's unbelievable. Absolutely and I, I was unbelievable. Thinking, and one place that happens was in Germany. <laughs> so I think, well, okay, why don't we just go the whole hog and make, us, make, this, make the badge look like a yellow star? Well, I have on my mobile phone an image of some graffiti from Germany. And I won't say it in German, but it says gas the unvaccinated on a wall. It's a piece of graffiti well, on a wall somewhere that somebody captured. I and I have it there on my phone, just as a reminder of, you know, the extreme attitudes some people went to during that time, you know. Yeah. And if you want to know what happened in Germany in the 1930s, mm. look all around you. Look at how the media have demonized people who have taken a different opinion. Mm. It's, it's dangerous. We walked a very, very dangerous path. Yes. You know, how easy could that have spun out of control? Absolutely. You know, yes. It's, it, oh, yeah. We, yeah, it, yeah. It, I, it could have become violent, couldn't it? We felt it, didn't we? 
very definitely felt it. Oh, yeah. I, absolutely, yeah. Yes, it yeah. was terrifying. There, there was a time towards the end of last year when I, I think it was really terrifying. Um, just, yeah. you know, it's mind games, of course. You, you were just projecting forward to how far could this go? And, how far? Exactly. Yeah. That's the yes. question. How yes. far can this go? Mm. And who is the person or persons or institution that's going to stand up and say, enough mm. because i couldn't see any yes because i think I, they'd let us all down I, I, parliament yes, had let yes, us down yes. the house of commons let us down the judiciary had let us down mm. the media had let us down who was left yes yes i, I think to stand up for us and say absolutely enough, this must stop absolutely yeah. and i think that notion of it spinning out of control is very important because yes. we can look at this and say oh yeah well that's a conspiracy theory and people wouldn't plan to do such and such but there's that element isn't there where things spin out of control and that particular outcomes are not actually foreseen Oh, but as a consequence of, of various things that do take place, they can all add together and create something really malevolent. Yes. And we saw that sort of thing happen in the previous century on steroids. Well, we <laughs> so, you know, it was not unreasonable to think, oh, heavens above, where is this going? But what it told me was the lessons of the 1930s have not been mm. learned. Yes, it's true. You know, mm. And I think part of it is we assume that these kinds of behaviours are consigned to the history books. Yes. And I think it's it's just too yes. much for some people to believe mm. that something yes. big, bad, and some, I don't know whether I'm right or wrong saying this, but sometimes it made me think evil mm. was stalking our world. Yeah. And it's it's much easier to believe that these things belong in the history books. Indeed. You know, and in the other as well. I've said on this program many times, I think we all of us have some element of residual racism within us. You know, this wouldn't happen here, you know. We can't be certain. <laughs> um, well, but it could happen anywhere. It can. It can. And it did. You know, we're not special. It could happen anywhere. Could happen anywhere. Well, no. Um, okay. So if listeners out there, um, wherever you are, not necessarily just here in the UK, these are universal issues. Um, we need to encourage each other wherever we are in the globe. So if they're interested in supporting you, and I hope people will, um, I have done myself, um, now, where, where do we need to go for here? We have Paul Greenall for West Lancashire. So this is Crowdfunder, isn't it? Crowdfunder.co.uk. Yes. Uh, forward slash P, forward slash Paul for West Lancs. Yes, Paul for West Lancs. <laughs> uh, I'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> yes, that's right. So they can go there. And um, you're trying to raise some funds here. Is that for your deposit? Is that what that's about? Yes, I need to raise, I think it's about £500 for a deposit, mm -hmm. and I need around about £1,500 £1, to pay for a leaflet to go to approximately 48,000 homes. Mm -hmm. And what I've said is, if I don't raise enough money to stand for Parliament, I will donate any money which I do raise to local food banks. Mm -hmm. If I do raise enough money to stand for Parliament and there's any money left, then I will donate whatever's left to local food banks. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, I would say to people, you know, wherever you are, wherever you come from, whatever your background in whatever country you are, why don't you think about doing the same in your area next time there's an election in your area? Mm. Why don't you say to yourself, I've had enough of this theatre. Mm. I'm going to stand up. Let's get some local people and let's put forward an alternative to the mainstream political parties in your country. If I can, There's nothing special about Paul Greenall. Mm. If I can do this, if I can make a, at least have a go at doing this then so can you. Mm. And if enough of us do it, we will make a change. 
Indeed. So the very fact of doing this is important, isn't it? I mean, statistically speaking, you're unlikely to be voted in, aren't you, in this area? Yes, because... This is a a red area and that's that, you know, sort of thing. Yes, this is a a very, very safe Labour seat and I will be up against the big guns of the big mainstream parties. They have all the resources at their disposal and I will have absolutely nothing. So are you wasting your time? No, because what I want to try and achieve, if if nothing else, I want to be able to raise some of the issues that we've spoken about Mm. during the election campaign. Mm. And if I can make some people sit up and think, hmm, that's an interesting question. I've never thought of that before. And if they tell their friend and if their friend tells their friend and it starts to spread, because like I said before, if this is not over yet, if the excess deaths are going to continue and if we can plant some seeds of questions to ask, if I only achieve that, then that will be something. If I can make a few people in West Lancashire sit up and listen and just stop and think, mm. what happened here? What's been going on in our country? Why did all this happen? Mm. Where could this go next? Then that to me will be an achievement. Well, I very much hope that people will realise, you know, what kind of person we've been talking to today, uh, somebody who really cares about these issues and has lived through this in a very conscientious way. And uh, I hope you're successful. Thank you very much. In your campaign. Well, there's a there's a very old saying which we hear once a year. Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And it seems to me over the last couple of years, the past, especially what happened in Germany in the 1930s and in other countries since in the Balkans in the 1990s, etc., those lessons have not been remembered. Mm. And therefore, we have gone down a pathway in the United Kingdom in the 21st century, which I would never, ever have believed. Mm. Let's just put badges on those people who refuse to take vaccine, shall we? Let's refuse them access to pubs and clubs. Let's refuse them access to employment. Let's make them unemployed. Let's put them in poverty because they won't take a medical intervention, Mm. which is still in its experimental phase. Let's make these people almost second-rate citizens. I was being, Mm. I'm not being too much here. We were effectively being threatened with becoming second-class citizens in our own country. Mm. This was a form of medical apartheid. Mm. We fought against apartheid in South Africa years ago. We were going to bring in a medical apartheid in the United Kingdom and many other countries where people like me was going to be relegated to a second-class status. Mm. Mm. That's unbelievable. It is. It is incredible. It is incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think people will hear in your voice just how genuine you are about this. Now, I know you from the stand, so I can speak with personal interaction with you, that you really do care about these issues, and you've lived through this, and your own personal experience is different from mine. And uh, and I do hope that people will support you. Um, So I will put the information in the show notes. So Paul Green will fall west lancashire and you know i hope you make it but of course you're you're up against the numbers and i realize that but the very fact of doing this i think is important as you say if enough people you can raise awareness enough people do similarly then you know the future will be brighter as a consequence um because we do need to have well let's be blunt about this we do need to have real politics taking place instead of party games all the time and people being too frightened to say what they really think yes. and having their their minds brainwashed you know, by the by the tricks that we've been seeing going on over the last couple of years Indeed. so to have somebody such as yourself who will stand for what they really believe confidently we need to necessarily agree with every single thing that every person stands for etc but Indeed. somebody who really Indeed. Yes, somebody who will really stand for what they believe. I think that is very inspiring in itself. So I do wish you all the best. And I will direct listeners to that particular crowdfunder page. And uh, let's hope that you can get a little bit more support. 
And thanks very much indeed for joining us, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. So once again, please do consider supporting Paul in his campaign to become an independent member of parliament here in the UK. Again, wherever you are, because, you know, it may seem like this is just a parochial matter. It's just about this little area of West Lancashire in England's green and pleasant, but admittedly tiny patch of land. But actually, you know, as we discussed in the interview, in a sense, what Paul is doing is bigger than that. It's part of what I certainly hope will be a general cultural shift towards more independence in politics around the globe. You know, seeking to break out of the various straitjackets of traditional party politics. And of course, it's tempting, and as we also mentioned in the conversation, it's tempting to be dismissive of any attempt to change the system from inside. I mean, I know, I, I feel that. My instincts tend towards pessimism on that point. But, you know, sometimes I have to check my pessimism because, you know, in my best moments, I think we have to use everything that's available to us, every opportunity open to us to try to make a difference, even if that difference ends up only having symbolic value. Because, after all, symbols do speak to people. Symbols do get people thinking and changing their minds. So I think we have to move on every front, use everything we can. So please do consider supporting Paul, even if you're in the farthest flung corner of the earth, you know, relative to the UK, that is. <laughs> and, and even if you can only spare a dollar or two, because, as they say, every little helps. Don't think of the supermarket, by the way, who <laughs> pinched that phrase. Don't think of them. And, and again, it's not about agreeing with every single thing Paul might stand for. I don't know everything, every single thing that Paul might stand for, but I've heard enough to know that he's a decent and able chap who cares and wants to make a difference along the lines that concern me and I know concern many of you TMR listeners out there. So again, to recover another captured phrase over the last two or three years, we're all in this together. So, you know, let's act together to support the good that we find wherever we find it. And I'll just end with a few words by Paul from his crowdfunder page. Quote, Whilst we were locked down under COVID-19 rules, MPs attended parties. Whilst MPs wanted to sack care workers and NHS staff for not getting the jab, I was proud to stand with my NHS colleagues and oppose this. As an independent Member of Parliament, I will oppose any more COVID-19 restrictions on our lives and support a public inquiry into the COVID-19 response. Party politics is broken. It's time for independence. End quote. So you will find that and how to support Paul at uh, his crowdfunder page, which is www.crowdfunder.co.uk. And his particular page is uh, forward slash P forward slash Paul for West Lanks. So that's all lowercase, uh, Paul as you'd expect it to be spelled, then a number four, and West Lanks. So that's West as you'd expect it to be spelled, and Lanks, which is L-A-N-C-S, obviously short for Lancashire. So crowdfunder.uk co.uk forward slash p forward slash paul for west langs and anyway of course that will be in the show notes my thanks once again to paul for joining us show notes for the program can be found at the mind renewed themindrenewed.com podcast music by the brilliant anthony rajkoff attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international you have been listening to me julian charles and my guest dr paul greenall and i very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future.